This is the Exercise Mechanic Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne Asenek. Hey, everybody. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to share with you an exciting new initiative we're doing here at the Exercise Mechanic. In future episodes, we'll not only be bringing on highly qualified guests with which we'll be diving deep into their areas of expertise and mastery, but we're also bringing on you. Now, although it may not be you, unless you'd like that, of course, we will be having live conversations with real fitness professionals about the specific problems they're facing with their clients. The goal of this is to get into the trenches with you, to talk about real challenges, and to find real solutions to help you move your business forward in a meaningful way. Exactly what will be discussed remains to be seen, but we'll be focusing on our four pillars, functional anatomy, biomechanics, rehab and pain science, as well as coaching. We will also be chatting about how to build a profitable training business because as you know, you can only continue to help people when you're profitable. We're going to be shifting into this model as of the new year. So stay tuned for new episodes, unlike anything you've heard before. If you'd like to be on the podcast with myself and perhaps even a guest speaker, if your needs are very specific, then send an email to theexercisemechanic at gmail.com or find The Exercise Mechanic on Instagram at The Exercise Mechanic. All right, enough about our new format. Let me tell you about today's guest, Dr. Michael Mash. Dr. Mash is the founder of the Barbell Rehab Method, a method that aims to promote a biopsychosocial understanding of pain and rehabilitation in the fitness and rehab world. He and his team work with personal trainers and clinicians, and they are shifting the narratives around pain. This episode was really fun for me because I'm actually a huge fan of what the Barbell Rehab team is doing. The perspectives they teach and encourage are very congruent with what we're doing here. In this episode, we talk about the Barbell Rehab framework, the importance of cultivating optimism in our clients, why one rep of a deadlift can actually change someone's life, and I've 100% experienced this to a T, and we talk about that a ton uh, in this episode. We also talk about why the notion of movement prerequisites is less supported than we previously thought and may actually be damaging. We do tons of myth-busting around rehab and injuries, and a whole lot more. If you're interested in seriously leveling up your game as a personal trainer, you're not going to want to miss today's episode with Dr. Michael Mash. Enjoy. Dr. Michael Mash, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Etienne. Super excited to see where the conversation goes. Yeah, man. Me too. Me too. I um, I, I was relatively recently introduced to you and the Barbell Rehab Initiative, let's say, I would say about six or eight weeks ago. I was talking with one right. of my friends, Chris Fudge, uh, oh, who's yeah. a powerlifter. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've uh, we've done some work together in the past. Oh, um, Amazing. So I was, I was chatting with him uh, about the potential of, you know, blending he and I's skill sets and mine being a little bit more oriented towards pain and his with barbell work. And I was like, maybe we could blend this thing. And he was like, oh, you should check out this Michael <laughs> Mash guy and barbell rehab. And so uh, I checked out your work. Uh, I vibed with it. And then that's when I reached out. So 
I'm psyched to have you here because uh, from what I've seen, you know, the message that you're looking to put out into the world and, and the subsequent changes that we're hoping that that will trigger um, are aligned with, uh, you know, what we're trying to do here at the Exercise Mechanic as well. Um, but before we get into specifically Barbell Rehab and what you guys are doing, I would love to just learn a little bit more about you because we just met. So I'm curious, you know, what led you to go down the fitness and rehab path? Why don't we start there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's a it's a long-winded story, so I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version of it. But basically, I was a high school baseball player, and um, my sophomore year of high school, my school contracted with a uh, hospital that sent us an athletic trainer, and we were super fortunate to get a really good one, and mm. he said, I'm going to help you throw faster. Here's how to do a rack pull. And I was like, whoa, wait, what? Barbells to throw faster? <laughs> so I was like 14 and knew nothing cool. about this. Uh, just a six foot, 130 pound lanky guy. And he showed me how to safely and effectively lift. And I was instantly in love. And I had some aching shoulder pain at the time that this helped also clear up. And I said, whoa, like, I think I want to go this route. I think I want to help people like this athletic trainer just helped me. And I stumbled into the uh, physical therapy realm with a mission from day one that I'm going to go to physical therapy school. I'm going to incorporate lifting into physical therapy. And that's, that's going to be the way it is. So I get to physical therapy school and I was like, where's all the lifting. <laughs> right. So, yeah. um, I quickly learned that it was not mainstream and keep in mind, I mean, I was in physical therapy school, 2013 to 16, and I think it has come a long way since then. Yeah. Um, but that was just the beginning of this idea of let's get multi-joint compound exercises. Doesn't necessarily need to be the barbell, but just sound strength and conditioning principles into rehab. So I had that mission all along, um, came out of school, immediately took a full-time job at a hospital outpatient setting where I was working with more people over the age of 70 than I can count. Mm -hmm. And looking back, it, I'm super grateful for that experience because I learned how to scale compound exercises with older adults. Um, mm -hmm. All through that time, I was working uh, on building up Barbell Rehab, the practice as a side gig, cash-based. Um, and then eventually I weaned down my time with the clinic and fell in love with teaching. And it's been ever since we've just been going off on Barbell Rehab now has evolved into a full-fledged continuing education company. So that's my story. I love it. I love it. And talk about, you know, stroke of luck of meeting an athletic therapist when you were 14. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, um, like I, I was introduced to the gym when I was, I think 19 and my fitness diet had nothing to do with, you know, uh, you know, I would say intelligent barbell work. It was just buys tries, I think five times a week with the occasional leg day, which revolved around calf work, you know, <laughs> so don't we all it. start out like that though? Like <laughs> that's right. That's the right. majority of people. I mean, cause it's fun. It's easy. And yeah. uh, that's just what most people think working out is right. Yeah, totally. And so, so why don't we, why don't we go into this, this barbell rehab initiative. I know we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording. Um, but you know, what is barbell rehab and, uh, what does it stand for and what type of changes are you looking to make in the fitness space? This thing. Yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, my mission has kind of evolved over the years and I'm super transparent about that. 
Um, I started this company as an Instagram page while I was in my third clinical rotation in PT school, started it from an extended stay hotel in Cincinnati. Like I remember it vividly. And the mission was like, the mission was at first was I want to help powerlifters overcome pain and improve performance. So it was heavily biased around how do you overcome pain with a squat bench deadlift and just getting barbells into everybody's hands. Like, I don't care how old you are. The barbell is the way to go. Like this super uh, dogmatic framework for everybody should low bar back squat, conventional deadlift and bench press. Um, and then over the years, over the last, uh, five to seven years, it's kind of evolved because we've realized that there's a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is this, not enough people are exercising like in general. Mm. So we've kind of switched away from the niche of powerlifting to a bigger mission of, only 23% of Americans are meeting physical activity guidelines. What can we do to bump that number up? And I think one of the biggest barriers to starting and adhering to an exercise program is musculoskeletal pain, just because of the massive misinformation out there about it in the general population. People think that what if I hurt, why would I exercise? It'll make it worse. And if I experience a little bit of pain during exercise, I should immediately shut it down. So those are the two big myths that we're trying to bust to get more people strength training. And it just so happens that we're biased towards the barbells, right? We're not married to the barbell lifts, but we realize that, hey, the bench, deadlift and squat and their variations can fulfill a lot of people's physical activity guidelines. Very cool. So I'd like to just kind of touch... uh touch, I guess, again, on those, those two kind of revamped, uh, objectives or, you know, missions or vision of barbell rehab from what, from what I understand. So number one, if I remember correctly has to do with, um, addressing this misconception that if you hurt exercise would make it worse. Correct. Yeah. And then the second is that, um, and perhaps you could actually clarify that because I'm having a brain, a brain fart. So could you just rehash those two things for me? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing, the first myth would be if I hurt, why would I exercise? It'll make it worse. So that's right. the first thing that we're trying to tackle. And the second thing is if I start to feel pain while working out, <clears throat> I should shut it down. So those right. are the two big, two big myths that we're trying to attack and we're attacking it from both ends. One thing about barbell rehab is what we really wanted to do to be unique was to create a course and create content that would resonate with both fitness and rehab professionals. So we Mm -hmm. want to attack this from both sides of the equation. What can a personal trainer do when somebody reports pain within their scope of practice? And at what point should they refer out to a rehab professional? And then what should the rehab professional do? So we're attacking it from the professional standpoint. So we, our mission is to teach the people that teach the people. Yeah. Very cool. And so, no, it's interesting. You, uh, two days ago, I had a conversation with another fitness professional and we, one of the topics that we were addressing was barriers to fitness. Um, you know, and, and within, within this context, one of the things that we were looking at was, um, fear and some of these narratives that you need to move in, in a perfect and pristine way. And you need to check all these boxes of these, of these assessments so as to meet the criteria, so as to be able to, you know, exercise. Um, and that's, that's, that's a topic that he in particular was very passionate about. And I've definitely noticed an evolution within the fitness industry, um, 
with regards to that. I, I started in the fitness industry, I think about 13 or 14 years ago, around there. And I remember when I first started, it was like, you know, you have to do a certain like wall arm slide assessment and 90% of people would fail that. That was the language we used, right? was fail. Um, Like you are inadequate (laughs) and, 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 and you cannot overhead press. Right. And if you, or, and if you do, it's inevitable that your shoulders will explode. And we were weaponizing that as a means of like, you know, getting people to sign up with us. And one of the things that I'm really psyched about when it comes to the fitness industry is that, especially I would say within the last like five years, perhaps four four to five years, it really seems like there's been a steep climb out of leveraging fear and taking a little bit more of a movement optimist approach. Um, Have you, have you noticed that, uh, you know, cause I can only speak to the personal training industry, but have you noticed that uh, similar changes in the realms of uh, physical therapy? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the biopsychosocial model of care has been around for a while, but thanks yeah. to social media, there's been a lot of loud brands and loud voices. And I'd like to consider myself one of them who've been sort of preaching it just on social media in the last five years. And that's caught on and it's starting to just create a shift to the uh, where the mainstream idea is now movement optimism, or I'd, I'd at least like to think that <laughs> yeah, instead yeah. of like kind of <laughs> gatekeeping exercise and telling people, oh, you need to do all these assessments in order to qualify to do a specific exercise. But I'm definitely seeing a trend on uh, the, the physical therapy side as well. I mean, even back in 2013, when I was in PT school, geez, it was almost 10 years ago. Uh, insane. Um, we're back dating then, ourselves here. I know. I know. Oh, <laughs> even back then we didn't get too much on biopsychosocial. I mean, I was taught how to derotate bones and to put bones back in place and how right. to correct pelvic upslips all there. We don't need to go in a rabbit hole down that, but I mean, I wasn't, I was taught on the biomechanist model and I was fortunate enough that I quickly unlearned that. And it just immediately resonated with me. And I was like, I knew I couldn't feel if a bone was rotated out of place back in PT school. I knew I wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I've definitely seen a trend on the rehab side as well. So this is a really interesting topic because, you know, as someone who, uh, I think it might be wise to define, you know, like taking a biopsychosocial approach or, you know, for those that haven't been exposed to that. So maybe we could define that in a moment, but what I'm really curious to hear your stance on is how do we reconcile like the, like when biomechanical variables matter Yeah, and, 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 and when are they actually potentially really significant contributors to someone's pain experience? You know, so yeah. how, how do you work through that? Cause this feels kind of messy and it seems like there isn't like a clear cut answer. So I'm curious how you work through this. Yeah. So first, yeah, let's define it. And then let's talk about form. So biopsychosocially cool. informed care means that we recognize that there's essentially three different parts to somebody's pain experience. It could include the biomechanics. It could include the psychological or the sociological factors. So three parts. And I like to think of it as like kind of a sliding scale because all three parts are present in any case. It's not like this is a purely biomechanical part and this is a purely psychological part um, or it's, it's a sliding scale and taking a good history and building rapport with your patient will start to give you some indication on, okay, this might be more of, uh, on the psychosocial scale. This might be more on the biomechanical scale, but 
With that, we want to make sure that we're treating everybody based on the umbrella of all three at all times. So that brings us to the question of when do biomechanics matter? When does form matter? And as you know, I'm sure you're on social media. There are people literally fighting about this topic uh, on social media. And a lot Mm. of them aren't asking the right question. They're asking the question, does form matter? And that's not the right question. In my opinion, the right question is, when does form matter? Because you know what I mean? Like, does form matter? What what does that even mean? It's not a yes, no answer. So if we talk about, let's talk about when does form matter when it comes to pain first, before we talk about performance. So the way we like to look at does form matter when pain is involved Um, it's a little bit less than when we're talking high levels of performance, because we know that pain is a highly multifactorial experience and 10, five to 10 years ago, I used to say, I used to do this thing on Instagram where I say, Hey, if you're having pain during a lift, send me a video of your form and I'll tell you exactly why you have pain. Mm -hmm. And I used to just be like, oh, you're having knee pain because you're letting them come too far forward, or you're having back pain because you're allowing your back to round too much during the deadlift. But once we realize, and once we fully embrace the biopsychosocial model of care, we realize that form is just one piece of the pain puzzle. It's not the entire piece and we can't omit it completely. It's just one piece of the puzzle because we need to make sure that we are looking at it within the entire scope or the entire framework of biopsychosocial care because somebody could have perfect we could even go into define what perfect form even means but yeah, yeah. Have, good luck with that one <laughs> i know right so somebody could have perfect we'll say textbook textbook form there we go the textbook. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they could still have pain because what yeah. else are we looking at what was the programming like? Did they do too much, too fast, too soon? If you do too much, too fast, too soon with any form, you're running at a risk of injury, right? What else is going on there in, in their life in the last three to six months? Are they going through significant life changes, life stress, life stressors that they're having trouble coping with? So it's not form doesn't matter. It's form matters in the when pain is present, but it's just one piece of the equation. Hopefully that sums it up to the, that's the best I can do. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so what would be some of the other uh, pieces of that puzzle? So, so, you know, you mentioned that form wrote this down here, form is just one piece of the pain puzzle, but what might be some of these other factors that you might be cognizant of, and that you might address, you mentioned mm-hmm. like psychosocial factors, but for those that are perhaps uninitiated, what might that look like? You know, gotcha. so it's like cool conceptually, but like tangibly. Yeah. So first let's, let's talk about the, the low hanging fruit, which would be programming. Um, the body is highly capable of adapting to various forms as long as the stressor is applied in a optimal, and again, what does optimal even mean? Intelligent manner. So basically mm. people can get with people can get hurt with any form if they load into it too much, too fast, too soon. And that's what we really, really, really need to zone in on here. So I was like, I use this example in our live courses. I was working with a guy once who very uh traditional low bar squatter, very adapted to posterior chain dominant work. So he's wide stands, Chuck Taylors, box squats. (laughs) I can see him. I can visualize him right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he said, you know what? I want to bring up my lagging quads. So he dosed in safety bar squats with upright torsos, five sets of 10. And uh, he emails me after two weeks and he says, my knees are screaming. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong with my safety bar squats? 
it wasn't a form issue, right? He was a super adapted to posterior chain dominant work. And then he dosed in a knee dominant variation too much, too fast, too soon. And like, we automatically think, oh, what's wrong with the form? It was never a form issue. I was just like, hey, your form's great. Let's back this down. Maybe three sets of six at RPE seven instead. So even when we teach our course, we really teach personal trainers and physical therapists to look at program. How is the stressor being applied over a week to week basis? Because we can't just make these arbitrary statements like deadlifts are bad for your back or squats are bad to your knees. It's too much deadlifts too quickly is where you're going to run into trouble. So that's my little tangent on programming, but well, if I may, your, if I may, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt, that's really useful. And I think like a lot of people would kind of put this under the, like the umbrella of like load management, right? This idea of like, we just exceeded your body's current capacity, understanding that current capacity can sometimes fluctuate, hundred uh, but it's like, we just exceeded your current capacity. And so, like you said, let's dial it back, mm-hmm. give your body the opportunity to recover, you know, yep. and then slowly build you back up over time. Right. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Yep. So you can even dial it back and modify it in the presence of that pain. Um, One of my instructors for the, for our course, Dr. Ben Garman, and I stole this from him because it's a really good analogy and I'm not sure where he stole it from, but basically sometimes I like to think if you poke the same spot over and over again, sometimes it can get cranky. Um, That doesn't mean that we need to stop poking altogether. Let's just poke it from a different, like a different way. Let that initial spot calm down, let mother nature do her thing. And then we can revisit it when the time comes. But the idea is in the absence of like any kind of significant red flag symptoms, the skill comes into how do I keep poking intelligently while respecting that there are symptoms. And that's what I think the name of the game really comes down to. Okay. Very cool. And so, and when it comes to, um, one of your posts, it's funny, you know, shout out to Chris for, cause this is the post that I think he sent me. He was like, Hey, check this out. You know, these are the barbell, uh, barbell rehab guys. And it was one where it was a snippet of you teaching a, a live course and you were talking about empowerment and, and why empowering the client is so important. And I was like, Oh yes, these 100%. are my people. So the floor is yours. Why, why does, you know, why is it important to empower our clients or to foster empowering narratives when it comes to pain and, you know, getting out of pain and facilitating performance. Yeah, for sure. Um, Number one, you don't know what people feel about their own bodies. And if they've been told by often well-intentioned healthcare providers that, Hey, Mm -hmm. your things like your spine is weak, unstable. It needs to be stabilized. While healthcare, while we know what that really means, we have to think about how our patients and clients interpret that because you're going to have people that come in that honest to God, think that their spine is like a tower of Jenga blocks ready to topple over at any time. And and this is where I always say, I use the example of one set of deadlifts can truly change somebody's life. Yeah, it really can. Is it enough to cause any kind of robust physiological stimulus? Of course not, but it can certainly cause a robust psychological adaptation. So part of our course and part of our brand message altogether is if you can coach somebody into some sort of squat or hinge variation on day one, doesn't need to be heavy. It's just to their tolerance. You can then use verbiage like, Hey, look, you just picked 50, 50 pounds off of the ground for five reps. 
and it felt good, right? And yeah, yeah, it felt fine. Look, you're not as broken as you think you are. That yeah. one set literally like, can change people's life. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Now that I now that I think about it, I didn't really answer your question about how do we tell biopsychosocially if something's going on psychosocially. Do you want me to revisit that, or do you would you like to go to the next topic in a moment? Because I'm really excited because you mentioned this thing of you know one set of deadlifts can absolutely change someone's life. I have uh, a client of mine currently. Um, and she was diagnosed as hypermobile and with that diagnosis of hypermobility also came a lot of caution from her physician or her physiotherapist uh, up here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so, and honestly, dude, the worst thing was Reddit. She went on this, like, (laughs) yeah, she went on this, like hypermobile, you know, uh, group, this Reddit group. And everyone was talking about how, like, you shouldn't do these things, but in particular, don't do deadlifts. Right. That was, Mm. that was the thing. And this is why I'm getting so excited when you shared this. Uh, I wrote down uh, one set of deadlifts can actually change someone's life, not because of the necessarily because of the, the, the tissue adaptations that will ensue from that, but because of how that can fundamentally alter how somebody sees themselves. And you can create evidence in the gym that they're not as fragile or they're not as broken and the ripple effects of that are absolutely immeasurable. And I remember this, this, uh, this woman, she did, uh, she hit triple digits, right? She, she, she pulled like one Oh five, you know, and she made it look easy. And this was after like a few months of, of working our way up to it. And she, she puts the bar down, you know, and she was like, how much was that? I was like, that's 105 pounds. And you did it like six times. So that's like, you know, 600 and you know, I'm bad at math, but it's over 600 pounds that you moved in that set girl. That's badass. And she was just like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know? Yep. And, and the moment she had was like, huh, you know, like what else am I capable of doing? Exactly. And like, you know? this is for the people listening to this, this is the stuff that matters, right? Because yeah, I agree that, that, that feeling of resilience in that expectation violation that they experience where maybe I'm not as fragile that bleeds over into every aspect of their life, personal mm-hmm. work, like it bleeds over everywhere. And that's why it's so important because now suddenly they're going to feel more confident just in themselves in general. They're going to feel more confident at work. They're going to feel more confident in their marriage. Like that's why this is how we can induce behavioral and just behavioral change with the barbell. So not necessarily barbell, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Mass-based resistance. (laughs) Exactly. I don't want people to think that like, I'm just only using barbells because I'm the barbell rehab guy. Yeah. 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 No. Um, yeah. So anyways, man, we, I, I totally agree with you on that. And I don't know if you could see how excited I was getting when you were talking about that, that deadlift notion, I was over here just having a party. Um, (laughs) let's, let's, let's circle back though, to, uh, you know, like, uh, psychosocial contributors yeah. to pain. Uh, sure. So let's talk about some of the um, important ones. And then let's talk about how I might go about addressing them. So cool. uh, things that can, uh, things that can affect pain from the psychosocial aspect of it. Number one, the big three stress, anxiety, depression. Now we don't want to 
give people the idea that their pain is being caused by stress, anxiety, depression, right? We don't want to use verbiage such as, Hey, you're in pain because you're a big ball of stress, or you're in pain because you're having anxiety. Like we don't want to use that verbiage, but we do want to recognize that these stress, anxiety, depression, especially those that are being managed suboptimally or not to the best of the ability can certainly influence a pain experience. And I'm not sure where I got this reference. Um, it might've been from Greg Lehman, where think of pain like kindling in a fire. And then when you put stress, anxiety, depression on, it's like throwing gasoline on it. And suddenly that kindling turns into a bonfire. Um, and now we have more to manage. So um, so that's the, that's the big one. And then that can lead to inability to do the things that people enjoy. And when you're unable to do the things you enjoy, you can become socially isolated. You don't go out with your friends like you used to. And that is all affecting, that can all affect somebody's pain experience. Now, not only do I hurt, but I'm unable to do the things I enjoy with the people I enjoy. So that's why part of care is, can we get this pain down to at least a manageable standpoint where we can then encourage people to, hey, I want you to start doing the activities again that are meaningful to you, even if it hurts a little bit. And that's yeah. super important because getting them back to the things they enjoy, that can help um, desensitize them, even if there is a little bit of pain. So that's why I'm big on getting people back to their activities, even if it's modified as quickly as possible, provided it's a tolerable training environment. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I would look at. And the big question here is how do we, how do we like assess this? And it comes down to, first of all, what is, who's working with this person? If it's somebody that doesn't have a license to treat like a personal trainer or a strength coach, it's not your job to treat this. It's not your job to personally work with somebody to help them overcome stress, anxiety, depression, but it's something that you can at least bring to the forefront and get them to the right person. So one thing that I like to ask, and we teach this in our course, and it's just an open-ended question is, has anything in your personal life changed in the last six months? And just see what they say. And they might give up information or they might be like, no, I'm good. And that's just at least like a screening question that you can ask um, because you can, you'd be surprised at what people would say to that. I once had a guy that said we were dealing with like some persistent neck pain and it was just one of those neck stingers. Like you woke up, can't turn your neck that just lingered on and on. And I asked him that question and he started telling me things like, yeah, well, I'm going through a divorce right now. My wife has the house and kids. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like psychosocial stuff could potentially be influencing that. So I like to ask open-ended questions just to see what people tell me. Cool. And then, so faced with that, you know, <clears throat> we're, we're not only just aware of it and we can like hold space and, you know, like be a good friend, I guess, as like, mm -hmm. as a, you know, as a trainer and also perhaps steering it in the direction of like, are you seeking help for this? Yep. Are you seeking support? Yep. Yeah. So, and doing what, I mean, as a personal trainer or strength coach, that's what you should be doing. Are you seeking help for this? Do you need a recommendation? Um, yeah. Is this something that you would like to address? Uh, and then say, Hey, we'll do everything from the physical side of things here. We'll make sure that we keep your exercises tolerable, that they feel good, help you get back to the things you do. But then at that point, the personal trainer uh, 
or strength coach should be just recommending some line of help. Physical therapists, we can, physiotherapists, we can dig into this a little bit more, right? Uh, where we can really start to identify false beliefs that may be keeping people from optimal outcomes. Like why does somebody think that their bones can easily go out of place? Why does somebody think um, that something like their form needs to be a very specific way? Just start to build this rapport with this patient. Um, ask them if they, uh, what their stress management strategies are. Things like mindfulness, meditation can be very helpful. And if uh, you deem that they could possibly use uh, some sort of like psychologist consult or medication there, there's different options here that we can treat it from a uh, wide lens. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, you know, as, as someone with your, with your background, um, you know, physical therapist and a strength coach, um, and also bringing it back to one of our first topics where we were talking about like barriers to fitness and the mission or the missions of Barbell Rehab. One, one question that I had for you in an effort of just making this kind of just, I don't know, very applicable for the listeners is, are there, I'm, I'm curious how you would answer this question. What are three myths or misconceptions um, about injuries? So specifically, perhaps like a knee injury, a back injury, and a shoulder injury that perhaps we could address and hopefully put to rest today. Is there anything that comes to mind? And what I'd love to just kind of organize this is one knee thing, one back thing, and one shoulder thing, just so we're covering, you know, a that. wide breadth. I know I you can, can do that. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but absolutely put to rest in the next 10 minutes. I, I don't know about that. I have I faith, certainly... man. I have faith. <laughs> All right. Okay. So. I already assume you probably know which route I'm going to go here. Let's start with low back. Let's start no with idea. low backs saying that uh, <laughs> rounding your back is going to cause injury. Okay. The best I can do here is um, realizing that people can adapt to different back positions. Um, even when, so there's this myth that if you round your back, you're going to get injured or rounded back deadlifts are bad for you. Because mm -hmm. here's the truth. Even when a back, when somebody's back looks straight, when it looks neutral, it's already rounded 20 to 25 degrees anyway. So mm -hmm. lifting and lumbar flexion is essentially unavoidable. Now, if somebody hurts themselves deadlifting with a rounded back, we can't blame the position itself. It's just maybe that they weren't prepared to handle that load or that volume in said position. Um, so this idea that we should fear monger the rounded back position, I'm not on board with it. Do we still coach neutral spine? Yes. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there is mm -hmm. going to be some performance benefit to getting a good, strong brace um, and good intra-abdominal pressure uh, spinal stiffness, all good for performance, right? Um, so myth number one is rounded back deadlifts aren't necessarily bad. Do you want me to extrapolate on that? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Um, <laughs> what do you, what exactly do you want me to extrapolate on? When might be rounded back deadlifts useful? Mm, okay. So two situations that I like to use rounded back deadlifts specifically one in the clinic. If we are working with somebody that had a back injury, it is flexion intolerant, meaning that flexion hurts them and we want to build resilience back up there. So we would do our traditional physical therapy things to try and desensitize the flexion movement pattern, which would be, I don't know, things like quadruped rock backs, just to start to slowly expose somebody to flexion. 
And once they can do it unloaded, I do like to add some load into uh, rounded back deadlifts, whether it's a stiff leg deadlift, doesn't necessarily have to be a Jefferson curl day one, but just some lightweight to just make sure that that person feels strong, both physically and psychologically in that rounded back position. So I will use it as part of back rehab for flexion tolerance at the end stages. Number two would be to use it from a performance standpoint for people that specifically have to work there. Think about uh, people that work in a hospital who are transferring patients. Do you think that they can maintain a neutral spine and No, they're lifting in flexion. They're lifting with flexion and rotation as they're transferring patients. So I'd like to make sure that we actually include some of that in the training program so that all of a sudden we're, we're not training in neutral and then they get into flexion. Well, we know that neutral is already a little bit of flexion. Let's say that they're training in slight flexion. And then all of a sudden their job puts them in moderate flexion, right? Let's prepare them for that. So that's the two examples where I would purposely use it. Am I one rep maxing everybody in Jefferson curls? No, um, but certainly it has its time and place. Cool, that's very good. You know, and I and you know just to kind of circle back to one of the things that you said at the beginning, it was something to the effect of like it's not whether or not you know does form matter, but it's like when does form matters, and when might it be useful <clears throat> to get people to. Uh, you know, deadlift in more flexion. When might it be useful to go more exactly. neutral-ish? When might it be neutral? Uh, you know, beneficial to cue someone to be like extended to the nines in their deads. Exactly. And instead of having binary ways of viewing things of good and bad, just being really comfortable with the gray. And I love that. And uh, that's yep. why I love these types of questions. All right, next. So after the back, do you want to go shoulders or knees? Let's go shoulders. Let's go shoulders. Right. Number one with myth with the shoulder is that. Wide grip push-ups, wide grip bench, or wide grip dumbbell bench is inherently bad for the shoulder and that you should do everything with 45 degree arm angles. Um, We don't have any evidence to suggest this. I think we have anecdotal evidence of people getting pec tears on wide grip bench, um, but just like with the low back, it wasn't the position. They just loaded into that wide grip position too fast, too soon. And if I Go. may, when you're talking about wide grip bench, are you talking about not just hand position, but also amount of abduction at the shoulder? Yes, correct. So I like okay. to think that those two go hand in hand. So the yes. wider you grip, the more shoulder abduction you're going to get, the more narrow you grip, the less shoulder abduction. And same gotcha. thing with the push-up. The the in general, the the farther we place our hands away on a push-up, that's an inevitably going to encourage more shoulder abduction. So I'd like to think gotcha. of it hand in hand. Okay. Um cool. yeah. So people can get hurt doing wide grip push-ups and people can get hurt doing wide grip bench press, but it's more or less that what was the programming of that? So if we pigeonhole, and this is the best way I like to think about it. If we pigeonhole everybody into the optimal form of 45 degrees, like you just see these pictures on social media of push-ups where 45 degrees green check and yeah. 60 and 80 red X my question is think about the bigger picture here, right? Not enough people are exercising. What happens if the 45 degree position hurts? Now you don't have any other options. Okay. So one of the biggest things to encouraging people and getting people to work out, even in the presence of pain is to have more options. And if we only have one perfect way, then we don't have other options. So you'll even see for specific types of shoulder pain, they're going to respond more favorably to a wider grip position. Um, One thing that I can think of um, is like anterior shoulder pain or specifically think of that shoulder pain 
Um, it's kind of all lumped under one term right now, rotator cuff related shoulder pain, but I'm thinking specifically mm. of the anterior shoulder pain. That's usually hurts right on the long head of the biceps. A lot of times those respond better to wider grips because the second you go too narrow, it's just going to reinforce that anterior shoulder pain. So give yourself options for when it comes to arm slots or degrees of abduction, when it comes to pressing and yeah. whatever one feels tolerable is the one you should go with in the presence of pain. And whatever one that people find the best performance on is the one you should choose from a performance standpoint. Cool. Love it. Boom. Last but not least knees. Knees. I think it, I think at this point, this myth is pretty much dead. Um, and it's like gone overboard because we have like people like knees over toes guy, like preaching it from the rooftops, but that's right. Yeah. Um, the knee forward position is not inherently bad. Okay. We don't want to swing the pendulum too far and say, everybody needs to get their knee as far forward as they possibly can at all times. Right. Because different squat variations are going to have different knee positions or different mm -hmm. amounts of knee flexion, different amounts of anterior, uh, tibial translation, but in general, the knees coming forward during the squats, during squats is not a problem. And it's actually needed for front squats and overhead squats, right? Try and do an overhead squat or try and do a front squat while limiting that knee forward position. And it's not going to look pretty. You're going to have yeah. significantly inclined torso forward. It's going to look like a low bar overhead squat, <laughs> That's which right. is not yeah. a very, uh, biomechanically efficient position from a performance standpoint. Um, but oftentimes people start to get knee pain during front squats. People start to get knee pain during overhead squats and they'll immediately blame the position. Ah, I told you too much anterior shear, too much shear stress on the knees. No, the position is necessary for that in order to be in a biomechanically efficient position. It's just, Hey, let's scale it back. Maybe we just loaded too much, too fast, too soon into it. So hope you're seeing a recurring theme here. Yeah, I absolutely. And and I hope that the listeners are seeing a recurring theme because in the grand scheme of things, a lot of these principles are, you know, the, these principles of, for instance, like, did you do too, ma too much, too fast, too soon? Are there other options that we can use that will not provoke pain to the same degree that we can perhaps leverage? Um, and, and perhaps if we can't, or if there's a reason why we want to really poke into pain, we can perhaps reframe it and do so cautiously. Like yep. the, the, these types of principles apply to the knee, the ankle, the hip, the back, the shoulder, 100%. the elbow, the wrist. Right. And so that's why having a principled based approach with these things is really important. And I love that our conversation just kind of naturally went there today. Yep. hundred percent. And like one, one caveat to that is especially with the low back, we don't need to treat it any differently than the rest of these body parts. I think that the low back, especially is something where there's a lot of fear yeah. involved around um, because things like low back tweaks can come out of nowhere and cause people severe pain for a week or two. And there's just this idea that the back needs to be protected more than something else like a shoulder, ankle, or knee. And that's also something that we're trying to um demystify as far as, Hey, the back is just another structure, just like anything else. I love it. So as we, as we start to wrap up here, um, is there any question that you wish I had asked that I haven't so far? To be honest, man, no, I think we covered everything that I, I wanted to cover. I hope to cover. And I yeah. think, and I hope that the viewers have a, um, more clear idea of a couple things here. One, 
just because the presence of just because pain creeps in doesn't mean you need to shut something down. Doesn't need you doesn't mean you need to shut down the workout completely. It all comes down to finding entry points to movement, modifying activities mm. to make them tolerable in the presence of pain while mother nature does her thing and desensitizes the system as a whole. And number two, don't let pain be a barrier to starting an exercise program. Find somebody, find a qualified professional that can help you despite having pain. And who knows, maybe the pain will even go down in the process of starting a strength training program. I love it. I love it, man. So, um, where can people, you know, learn more about you? Where can they sign up for barbell re rehab courses? If they're interested, mm -hmm. uh, I'd like for you to like do your pitch, do your thing. And we'll wrap from there. Sweet. Yeah. So the, the social media platform that we are most active on right now is Instagram. Give us a follow at barbell rehab, uh, check out all of our content. We're posting new content there about three times a week, share it with your friends. And then on our website, barbellrehab.com, we have a bunch of free options. We have free blog articles, free webinars. We do a monthly research roundup where my team digests nice. three new 2022 studies every month. You can subscribe to that. And then if you like what you see, consider coming out to one of our two-day live courses, the Barbell Rehab Method Certification, where we will teach you how to do literally everything we just talked about in this webinar or in this uh, podcast. Um, we'll teach you everything. See you approved. Come on out whether you're a fitness or rehab professional, have a little fun and uh, learn how to help your clients continue to train in the presence of pain. I love it. And uh, from what I remember, you have a course coming up in Toronto, I think in a week or two, is that correct? It is coming up in three days. So I'll be driving up to Toronto here in on Friday. Yep. All right, cool. And then do you have any other Canadian courses after the Toronto one uh, on uh, on your calendar? Yes, actually, we just haven't, we haven't finalized it on the website. Yes, but I will give you the information here. We will be coming up to Canada four more times in 2023. Three of them are already booked. Um, we'll be looking at London, Ontario and Toronto again at the end of May. And then we will be going to Winnipeg in okay. the beginning of June. And then we're also hitting Halifax on in mid-February. So cool. Canada's for the win next year. Excellent. Amazing. Well, uh, you know, the majority of our listeners are, you know, in Canada, at least at this point. And so um, I have no doubt that, you know, today's conversation has piqued their interest and it's nice to know that there's going to be lots of options available to them. Um, for sure. Michael, thank you so much, man. It's been really fun getting to know you and and just you know chatting with you about you know some of these topics that um, that I'm personally really fascinated about. So selfishly, today's been a lot of fun. Uh, I learned a lot, and I really hope and I'm very confident that our listeners learned a lot too. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, ATM. Shout out to Dr. Mash for today's episode. To learn more about him or to register for Barbell Rehab's courses, check out the show notes. It's all linked there. Keep your eyes peeled for our next episode where we chat with someone just like you, a personal trainer who wants to make meaningful changes in their clients' lives, all while making a great living. Join us as we tackle the very real challenges they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon.